come and drink deeply at the well that I have prepared for you. In church, it is a well, it's not a spring. Springs just bubble up out of the ground, no effort. But I sense the Lord is saying, it's a well, it's a well. And to gain what I have in this well will take the discipline of you coming and getting alone and getting still and getting quiet with me. And as you do, the weight and the glory of my spirit will counterbalance that bucket deep down in the well. And the bucket will rise up. And with it will come a fountain of revelation of my grace, my mercy and my love that you have not known before. So here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever will open, I will come in and sup with you. Is God's promise to us this Easter Sunday. Amen. Amen. Oh, wow. Pretty awesome, wasn't it? The worship and the prophetic word, and now we're in for a real treat because Selwyn is coming to speak to us on the resurrected life that has been given to us. Thank you, team. Thank you. Selwyn, come take the pulpit. So good to be back with you all. Had a great time. Thank you for praying for me. My holiday was great. As I was fam with family for part of it, I'm sure when I preach the next few weeks, I'll be able to put some little illustrations in to do the big brag about the nana. Just while Selwyn's getting set up, let me just remind you about Easter eggs. Some people will try and tell you that they're bad because they distract from the real Easter message. Well, they aren't because the hollow Easter eggs remind us that the tomb was empty. The ones with marshmallow and no yolk, they remind us that we are full of the Holy Spirit. The ones that are marshmallow with yolks, they remind us of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Ghost. Chocolate, white, yolk, three, making up the one. So eat your Easter eggs. And remember, the Easter story is tied up in your Easter eggs. Father God, I pray for this mighty man of yours. I thank you for the word you've laid on his heart this morning. And Father God, I pray that as he looks out, he will see how it is entering into our hearts. And Father God, we might be few, but as each one of us takes on board that which you are applying to our lives today, and we go out and we allow that to flow out of us and into our community, it will bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Imagine for a moment, if you can, that you are there in Jerusalem that first morning. It's been three scary days since the brutality of the crucifixion by the Romans. 
the disciples of Jesus are still stunned, unsure what to do, mingling around. All their dreams were shattered and the joyful hosannas of just a week ago were a distant memory. We need to remember the sequence of things that happened. Little seems to make sense anymore. But what's this? The two Marys and the other women are babbling excitedly about the tomb being empty. To make things more confusing, Jesus' body is missing. Resurrection? Well, that hadn't happened before. Well, not quite. There's one or two occasions in the Old Testament, of course. From, from memory, I think, four. Well, could it be true? We just don't know. This is sort of strange to us. We saw the nails going in and the spear. We saw him die. We buried him. There must be some mistake. Is this a sick joke? Or is Jesus really alive like we've been singing? To this very day, there are still those who attempt to explain away the physical resurrection of Jesus. Some say it was a hoax. Some say that someone stole the body. I want you to consider the following evidence. The Jewish elders requested that a Roman guard of 16 soldiers be placed outside the tomb in which Jesus' body had been laid. Pilate granted the request and sealed the tomb, I understand, himself. If one member of the guard were to fall asleep or leave his post, then all 16 would have automatically been executed. That's called discipline to make sure nobody goes AWOL. It's a very great incentive to stay awake. In Matthew 28, 11 to 15, it's recorded that the Jewish elders bribed these soldiers to say that they fell asleep and that the body had been stolen by the disciples. So I asked the question, if the guards were asleep, how did they know who had stolen the body? And if they needed to be bribed, then quite obviously they did not fall asleep because they knew the consequences. If the disciples really did steal the body of Jesus while all 16 guards slept nearby, why would they want to remove the grave clothes which had been wrapped around the dead body? They had limited time. This required quick action because there would have been instant death had they been caught. Surely this was unnecessary and time-consuming. The disciples were few in number, depressed, afraid, and at that moment lacking in leadership. It's most doubtful they would suddenly have become brave and daring enough to face an armed Roman god and a guard and steal the body. Maybe a Freudian slip there. If they had done this, they would then have been deliberate deceivers which was contrary to the moral character they had shown both before and afterwards. What could possibly 
be the motive behind the stolen body theory. People may die for something they believe in, but it would be strange to die for something you know to be a lie. And virtually all of the disciples were martyred for their faith in Jesus. Just have a look at them. Andrew was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. John was boiled in oil, but when that failed, he was exiled for his faith, the only one to die of old age. Judas, not Iscariot, was stoned to death. Matthew was speared to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thomas was speared to death. And Matthias was stoned to death. There's only one reason these men were willing to suffer such terrible persecution for Yeshua's or Jesus' name. And that's because they had seen the Messiah crucified and then rise from the dead. And the truth is worth dying for. So no, there is no evidence that the body was stolen. Now, it's interesting, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that um, Jesus' body was um, dissolved by God. Um, it's a weird theology. Don't know where they get it from, not, by the, uh, not from the Bible. Matthew describes Jesus returning in his body. He ate fish. He ate honey. He ate bread. So this is confirmed in several parts of Scripture. And Zechariah prophesied they will look on him who, on me whom they pierced. If Jesus is returning in the same body, then God did not dissolve it. So we can dismiss their theology fairly well immediately. Did Jesus really die or did he just faint? We need to cover these to understand them. Another theory is that Jesus didn't really die, just fainted, was revived by the coolness of the tomb and, um, and the spices, of course. Pilate, as the governor, would never have consented to the burial until he had confirmed that death had occurred. That's the Roman way. Roman soldiers were good at their jobs, including knowing how to crucify people. After all, they did nearly a million of them, so they knew how to do it. That's industrial scale, like the ovens in Nazi Germany. They didn't make mistakes. This fainting or swooning theory asks us to forget too many facts. Jesus had been flogged to within an inch of his life, was so weak he couldn't carry his own cross. He was nailed to that big, the big wooden beams of the cross and he hung there for three hours in the heat of the day. The Roman soldiers pierced his side and blood and water rushed out. This shows that the spear actually pierced his pericardium, his, his heart which means it's an instant death the moment that happens. Ask a nurse or doctor. After the spear in his side, the soldiers didn't even bother breaking his legs as was the normal practice, uh, which was to help us end 
through the asphyxiation because the body can't hold its uh, weight anymore. You see, Roman soldiers knew a dead body when they saw one because they saw quite a lot of them. After Jesus was buried, embalming spices were enveloped in the cloud in the cloth which was wrapped around his body. These spices were poisonous and would probably have been sufficient to kill him on their own if there was still any doubt. What about escaping from the tomb? We're asked to believe that in this feeble state, having been buried without food or water for three days, Jesus could somehow get out of his grave clothes, move the huge stone on his own and escape the alert Roman guards. All this would have required significant medical treatment as well as food, water and rest. Afterwards, Jesus is alleged to have given his sceptical disciples the impression that he was victorious over death and the grave. Get serious. Would Jesus, who taught about truth, have deliberately and fraudulently have passed himself off as risen from the dead if it were not so? No way. All evidence shows the faint or swoon theory is simply impossible. Was it an illusion? Another theory about the resurrection of Jesus is that it was an illusion or hallucination, but there were too many people around for that. Jesus even gave, even had to rebuke his own disciples for their unbelief. The people who knew him best, who had lived and traveled with him for up to three years or more, took plenty of time to be convinced. And once they were convinced, nothing could stop them proclaiming what they had seen with their own eyes and knew in their hearts. No, Jesus was raised from the dead. Nothing could convince them otherwise, which is why all but one of the disciples died in that belief. Paul dealt with the claim that it's impossible for someone to be resurrected in his first letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 15. His basic message there is that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus wasn't resurrected either. And if this were true, then our preaching is useless, so is our faith. We would be false witnesses about God if we claim that he raised Jesus from the dead. We must still be in our sins. There is no hope for anyone who has died believing in Jesus, but Paul gives the answer. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, and just as in Adam all die, so all in Christ will be made alive. You can hang your hat on that. Okay? So, how do we know for sure that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I want to give you seven main proofs. Firstly, there's an empty tomb. You know, the comment has been made by plenty of people over the years, the tomb of Buddha is full. The tomb of Muhammad is full. And you could apply that to all manner of religious groups around the world. But when the two Marys came to the tomb on that first Easter morning, 
they found the tomb was empty and the angel said to them in Matthew 28, 5 and 6, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. Later on, the men also came and saw that the tomb was empty. Second proof is the angel's testimony. They testify that Jesus was raised from the dead, and I find it hard to believe an angel would tell a lie. They even ask why the disciples were seeking the living among the dead. That's in Luke 24, 5 to 7. The third one, people spoke with Jesus. Many people did that after the resurrection. Mary Magdalene, Cleopas, and all 11 disciples. He was seen by many people is another one. These are no less, sorry, there are no less than 12 separate appearances, interesting number, of the risen Jesus. Over 500 people saw him at one particular time. And I don't think that mass hypnosis is an excuse in those days. They didn't know what it was or how to do it. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6 if you want the details. Um, and in Acts 1 verse 3 it says, He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by many during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He showed them his wounds, especially to Thomas who had expressed doubts about what the others had seen without him. The evidence of the wounds in Jesus' hands, feet and side convinced Thomas that Jesus was alive again. And of all of the disciples, he wandered the furthest with the gospel all the way to India. And that's why the state of Kerala has a very strong Thomas connection in India. Another proof, Jesus ate food. In the presence of unbelieving and sceptical people, he ate fish and bread on more than one occasion. I suppose it's the early form of fish and chips. Then there's Stephen's testimony. Stephen was about to become the first martyr of the Christian faith. He testified to seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. That's in Acts chapter 7, verse 56. He's hardly likely to say something that provocative if it's not true because it cost him his life. And then there's Paul's testimony. Paul was to meet uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was powerfully converted, even though it, he went there with the purpose of persecuting Christians because he wanted to destroy the church there. He became the foremost speaker of the Christian message in his day, going on many missionary journeys and experiencing many hardships. He was finally executed by his faith, according to Acts 9 verse 5. And since those early days, millions, millions of people can testify to their own personal experience of the living Saviour. Mm. They know the full release from their own burden of sin, which Jesus replaced with a deep peace. 
the former Lord Chief Justice of England, Lord Darling, has stated publicly that there is as much evidence historically of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as there is for any other event in history. We need to take that at face value from a man of that stature. So how was Jesus raised from the dead? Um, well, the Father did it. As was stated in Acts chapter 3.15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this, said the disciples. And in Acts 2.24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So God exerted his mighty power to fulfill David's prophecy that Jesus' body would not see decay nor be abandoned to the grave. And if you want to see where that is, it's in Psalm 16 verse 10 and in Psalm 49 verse 15. So only God could give new life to the dead. That's why resurrection is limited only to those in the Christian faith. You won't find it in any other religion uh, if you care to study them. So what are the results of the resurrection? It proves, above all, the existence of God. For if there was no God, how else could Jesus have been raised from the dead? This is sort of logic, really. He rose because the living God brought him back to life. The resurrection also proves the deity of Jesus, because in Romans 1, 4, it says, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Salvation was completed when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. It's now available to all who call on his name. As it says, as Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 10, verse 9, he said, If, so it's conditional, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you die, you will be resurrected. Hallelujah. So, one day, Jesus is returning. We call it the second coming. Everyone will stand before God's throne, including everyone who's died. Only those who have put their faith in Jesus can know that they will have been raised to eternal life with God in heaven. Whether we stay there or not is actually not my concern. To be with Jesus is the important thing. It guarantees that. For Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He or she who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You see, when you come to faith in Jesus, you will live forever. It may not be in your current body form. Um, and if Derek Prince and David Pawson are correct, we're all going to be aged 33. And I think that's going to be wonderful, and there'll be no twinges and the hinges and all of those things. So, 
What do I want to say about this? God's holy days are all about Jesus. The Passover, he dies. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, he rids his house of sin. There's first fruits because he's the first to be raised from the dead. Pentecost, which is in 50 days, he sends his spirit. At the Feast of Trumpets, he returns. So whichever year it will be, it'll be September. Okay, it's the only unfulfilled feast. The Day of Atonement is when he judges the earth and at the Feast of Tabernacles is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you know what? You will eat and eat and eat and not need quickies. And right now, there's a tomb for sale because it's vacant and it wasn't used for long. And I thought I would just bless you with this. Somebody sent it to me this week. Lockdowns never really worked around Passover. I think that's... I was sending that to my friends in England. (laughs) And just in case there's any doubt, I want to repeat this passage in Isaiah 55.11. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word goes forth to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable so that Jesus receives the glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I think the musicians are going to come and sing something for us. Is that my understanding? Uh, I can come up with one quick enough. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we all know where to look, don't we? No, they're there. What we call the Lord's Supper is the is the Passover that we had um, the other week, which quite a number of you were enjoying. It was good kai, wasn't it? It was very good kai. Might have to try that again and again. Paul writing to the Corinthians says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup. As those of you who were at the Passover remember, there were four cups and the third cup is the one that he shared, the cup of redemption. And said, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. My hunch is most of us in this room today will be here when he returns. Can't guarantee everyone. That's not my business. I find it really interesting. Um, While we were worshipping before 
Uh, and thank you, Jeff, for that. It was quite special. Um, the Lord reminded me of something I had actually forgotten. I was in Canada doing some ministry in Ontario, just up the road from where Anne comes from. And I met a guy, he's sort of recently retired. Um, he's, his work had been as a chef in the Canadian military. He had shown no interest in God to the point where somebody tried to share the gospel with him in his kitchen and he pulled one of his big carving knives on him and said, get out of here, I'm not interested, even though his wife was a good Baptist. His name was Paul. But Paul came to the Lord around the time he retired. Maybe he was just too busy. I don't know. And he thought he'd better do something useful. He was a bit like me. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you're suddenly like a sponge and you have to read everything, including things you have to unlearn later because you lack some discernment sometimes. And Paul said something very interesting to me. He said, I wandered up and down the street to see who I could share Jesus with. And he saw a man who happened to have a name like Peter, actually, true, um, was in a, one of those electric scooters because he had a breathing difficulty. Um, I can't remember what he had, muscular dystrophy or one of those conditions. And they got chatting and had a coffee and they got to be quite friendly. And um, Paul goes around to Peter's house and does the dishes because he's not so clever as housekeeper, didn't always come in or whatever the story was. So he knew how to get into the house. And they developed quite a friendship over a period. And then one night after dark, Peter rings Paul up and he says, it's just too much. I just, I'm struggling to breathe too much. He said, I've just had several bottles of pills and a big flask of sherry to wash them down. And he said, I'm just ringing to say thank you for being a friend. Well, Paul didn't know what he didn't know, and so he thought, well, that can't be it. Nobody should die on their own. So he went around to Peter's house. He lit himself in. He knew how to do that by arrangement. Sat there looking at this body that was starting to change color as they do. And he said, God, is this it? And the Lord dropped a thought into his mind that was a wee bit radical, probably for most of us too. He said, well, Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And he said, I know what to do. So he said, God, all those pills, he put his hand on, on Peter's chest, lying on the bed. He put his hand on his chest and he says, God, I, I command that those pills and that sherry should now return to water and stop killing him. In Jesus' name. And Peter sat up coughing. And they became quite good friends after that. They'd been friends before. And I met this man, Peter. Uh, I was speaking at a training course there. And uh, he comes up after the lunch break. We're just about to start again. He comes up on his little scooter to me 
And he said, did anybody get you a coffee um, during lunchtime? And I said, actually, no, I didn't. I had something else. And so he says, okay, I'll go down to Tim Hortons and get you one. That's the coffee shop for Canada. He gets down the court, he, he shoots out down the road to where there's a Tim Hortons coffee shop, gets it, brings it back, brings it right up to me and gives it and then went back to park at the back and got up and walked to the toilets. So God's doing something in this man. He's made a profession of faith all because a man didn't know that you shouldn't pray for pills and booze to be converted back to water. So stop and think about that. That's just one case that I've seen the people, I wasn't there when the event happened, but I saw the the witnesses of it because of the two men involved. And I talked to uh, Paul's wife about his life pre-Christ and he she confirmed everything. Lovely couple. Actually, I ended up staying with them. So I got to see them a, a little closer up. It was genuine. So I want to suggest to you when the Lord gives you a situation that you think is too much, just think of that Peter and Paul. I don't know why, but I just got a hunch that some of you are going to be confronted with situations not hugely different from what I've just described. And that's okay. But now you know what to do because it's been done before. Okay? I always think of my, my friend Lynn Reddick, Dr. Lynn Reddick in, in Georgia, and he tells the story in, in, in a way that only a Southern Baptist pastor can, that Jesus looked at the water that Mary had told the servants to put in, the, in those big cisterns, and they, the water saw the Creator and blushed. So I want to encourage you, we know what it stands for. And we know the command of Jesus to share it knowing what it stands for. It's real. If any of you have healing issues, let this, what we're about to receive, may it bring healing to you, spirit, soul, and body. Now. became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness he humbled himself and carried the cross love so amazing love so amazing Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners. The ransom from him.
Jesus Messiah, Lord of all, His body the bread, His blood the wine, broken and poured out all for love. The whole trembled and the veil was torn love so amazing love so amazing Jesus Messiah name above all names blessed redeemer Emmanuel the rescue for sinners the ransom from heaven Jesus Messiah, Lord of all, all our hope is in you, all our hope is in you, all the glory. Jesus Messiah. Maybe we all stand together, yeah? Lift your hands to the Lord. Name above all names. Yes, Lord God. Name above all names. Blessed Redeemer. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. The rescue for sinners. The rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. Hallelujah. Sing, all our hope is in you, God. All our hope is in you. All our hope, all hope is in you. All the glory to you, God. The light of the 
And closing our service this morning, I would love to pray over each and every one of us. So, Father God, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for sending us Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for staying on that cross. Father God, I pray that each and every one of us, by the power of your Spirit, would live our lives worthy of your sacrifice. That as we go from here this morning, we would take full hearts in the knowledge of Jesus. You are our Messiah. You are the name above all names. You are our God. And I hear a voice from heaven replying and saying, and you are my children. So church, go out secure in the knowledge that you are greatly loved. There is no power greater than the blood of Jesus and the love of the Father. Be secure in this. He is our hiding place. He is our strength. He is our strong tower. He is our shield. And nothing, nothing, nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Remember to ponder on these things each and every day. That our lives will be full of that special, special water that flows from his throne to our hearts. And we would live our resurrected lives here on earth to the fullness of the measure he has given to us until that day, until that day. For we know whom we have believed in, and he is faithful to take that which we have entrusted to him unto that day. And may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us, be gracious to us, and give us peace every day of our life. Amen and amen. amen.